Hi everyone, welcome to Morning Matcha. Today's guest is Alexis Haynes, who is an ex-reality TV star, pretty famous from a meme that was circulating and continues to circulate about your stilettos, I think. (laughs) We'll get into it. (laughs) And she also now has her own podcast called Recovering from Reality, and I was recently on it, so I'm just really excited to chat with you today and hear more about your story. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming all the way here. Um, So I know you grew up in LA, right? Mm -hmm. We kind of talked about that a little bit when I was on your podcast. Did you grow up in Westlake? I did. I was born in Calabasas. My parents um, raised me in, it's, I actually grew up in Oak Park, which was a little tiny suburb, basically of Westlake. And um, my dad was a very famous director of photography. He did Friends and and The Nanny and all of these big 90s sitcoms. Um, And my mom was a model who left her home in the Midwest at 14 to have a career being a supermodel, basically. And she moved out here when she was dating... um, a guy that was in Pink Floyd, actually. (laughs) And um, she was working on a show that my dad did, and they got married shortly thereafter and had myself and my sister. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in L.A. Yeah, uh, she was, yeah, like 28 when she had me, Uh, I think. So not not too, too young. But, yeah, she... um, She, my mom is this like kind of free spirited pot smoking hippie chick and who had no boundaries and a lot of trauma. And my dad, um, was this kind of really engaging and vivacious man who was super attractive, but was a terrible alcoholic. Mm. And when he drank, he often became like really violent and aggressive. So it was pure chaos in my household growing up. My parents separated when I was three. Oh, wow. So do you ever, do you remember them together though? All the chaos or just yeah. kind of feel the trauma? So I mentioned that there's no boundaries. So um, <laughs> my dad ended up cheating on my mom mm. and with a woman who didn't know that he wasn't single. Mm. And so, um, but it kind of became one big chaotic family because my mom and my stepmom ended up becoming best friends. Oh. And then um, we would like go on trips all together. That's good and not not so much. (laughs) Um, I, well, it was great that they'd become friends. Like eventually my dad got really jealous of the relationship and it turned sour Mm. quickly. Um, Are they still together? No. So they got divorced five years after that. And, um, Amy, who was very young, I think she was only 23 when she got together with my dad, we're best friends. So you guys are me and Amy now. Yeah. So still to this day, like I call her mom, which is weird because she's also like literally my best friend Mm -hmm. and I just adore her, but it was pure chaos in my household. I mean, my mom was checked out a lot, smoking pot. My dad was, a really kind of crazy alcoholic. Like I had said, there was incest going on, lots of blurred lines as far as like sexuality and with you guys. Or, mm-hmm. mm. Yeah. Do you like have a, a relationship of, with him now? Yeah, he was fine. Um, but like he had girlfriends, a girlfriend that was 
sexually abusing and just very not healthy. And then there was another male family member who was 10 years older than I was, who was um, essentially raping me when I was five years old. And that went on for many years. And you didn't know what Um, was happening or had you kind of, you had an idea that it wasn't, it was inappropriate. It's interesting. So children don't really have like a frame of reference of Mm -hmm. like what's appropriate and what's not. They're figuring out what is appropriate and what's not. And, um, most of the time abuse happens with somebody that, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's grooming involved and grooming is the process of creating the story before the abuse actually takes place. So this was just what X and X do. This is what, you know, I'm filling in the blanks because he has to remain anonymous, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, because he'll sue me if I come out because there, I didn't end up reporting to the police until I was 19. Mm -hmm. So I kept his secret for many, many years. He was someone that I saw in the family often. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, um, amount of just chaos and abuse that took place in my family. I, I feel like I'm lucky to be alive today. Um, and you definitely took that on and took it out in a lot of ways. So, yeah. And yeah. now you're here, which is really amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. By the time I was 13, I was already exploring with substances. And by the time I was 15, I was a full blown opiate addict. By the time I was 19, I got sober from my IV heroin addiction. So it How did, progressed really fast. Yeah. Was that, do you think because of obviously the trauma and school or like, did you kind of seek that out? Um, so your environment. It started with just like, you know, stealing warm beers from my friend's parents' refri- um, garages, you know, How before they'd you? stick them in the refrigerator. I was maybe like 12 or 13 or something, mm-hmm. something like that. And you I would had do a, that with your friends, though, yeah, right? Yeah. And I had like an older boyfriend who, um, you know, was already going to high school parties and I was entering eighth grade. And so, you know, I was around up that. Fast, and, yeah. Um, pot was something that was regularly consumed in my household. I remember smoking pot with my mom as young as 14 years old. So Mm -hmm. it was just like something that was really readily available. And then by the time that, um, I was around the age of 15, I ended up having a surgery and I tried, I had foot surgery. I was a dancer on my life and just screwed up my feet so bad. And they ended up needing to break a couple bones and it was fine. But I had Vicodin for the first time. And when I had that first high, when like the pain had subsided, but I still took the pain pill, I could actually feel like the emotional benefits of opiates. Mm -hmm. And I had a thought, you know, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Like this, this is it. Like this is, I just need to check out because... My dad's abuse had become physical and my mom was just not a present parent Mm -hmm. and I needed to escape my reality. Mm -hmm. Hence why my podcast is called Recovering from Reality. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so it was just like so much trauma and we eventually um, ended up getting our own reality show on E! I graduated high school two years early and I began modeling just as my mom did. 
And I was doing background work for music videos and hooking up with big celebrities. And I was having this really exciting life. And this was on the show? Before the show. And I met a producer on set of one of the movies that Tess and I were extras in. One of my sisters. And um, he was like, do you want to shoot a sizzle reel? And we were like, sure. For anyone who doesn't know what a sizzle reel is, it's like a pitch that Mm -hmm. you send to networks. And I was like, well, why not? What's the chance of us really becoming like the next Kardashians? Mm -hmm. One in two million, 10 million. Mm -hmm. Like there's no way that this will happen. Were they, was their show already out? Yeah. They were in their third season. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of like when reality TV was like at its peak, Mm -hmm. you know, or on the upward trajectory. Still up. Yeah. Yeah. And so I said to my mom, like, we should try this. And she was like, okay, you know, her mom, Major came out and she was like, absolutely. Like, this is the big break that she's always been wanting, you know, Mm -hmm. waiting for. And so, uh, yeah, I, we shot the sizzle reel and immediately there was a number of networks that were really interested and we ended up going with E and on the second day of filming, um, I had been out the night before I rolled into my house around four thirty in the morning. I popped a Xanax, which not a great idea, but I thought I'd have like five hours to sleep it off, you know? And, um, an hour after I got home, the cops raided my house and came to arrest me. And because I was involved with the bling ring, which was a group of these teenagers that were robbing the houses of celebrities. So this was happening while you were, like working or you were an extra in videos and all this stuff. So, or when did that happen? So I met Nick Prugo in March of that year, which is just kind of in the beginning phase of when I was doing these music videos. And I didn't know at the time that him and Rachel Lee had been robbing houses for many, many months. Mm. And Nick was this young gay, like cool kid that liked to party the way that my sister and I did. Mm -hmm. And my sister actually knew him from before and I didn't know that. And so, um, we ended up hanging out and partying and had a great time. And it was not one of those things where we were like instant best friends by any means, but it was like, okay, he likes to use and party the way that I do. And Um, I actually didn't spend that much time with Nick. Um, but one night, what ended up happening was we signed our deal with E in June and because we got money, our drug use escalated really quickly Mm -hmm. and it became so out of control that my mom ended up kicking us out of the house because we were so crazy that she couldn't deal with us anymore. Oh God. And I had just turned 18 and I was basically like, I, I don't need you. You know, like screw you. I'll do it on my own, which I had been an adult my entire life. Like Mm -hmm. they had, I never had a childhood, so it wasn't anything new. Mm -hmm. And I went to stay with Nick because 
he had a household where his parents didn't care what we did. And so one night we were all out drinking. Um, and he was like, let's go. I've got to go to this house. I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm like already wasted. (laughs) And I'll just kind of skip over because you'll have to buy my book to read the rest, but it (laughs) it really wasn't that exciting. And before I know it, like I'm at Orlando Bloom's house. I didn't know it was Orlando Bloom's house at the time. And was he there? Yeah. Him and Rachel, um, were there and, um, one other of my co-defendants and, um, that was the last time I talked to Nick. And I began calling the cops about a month and a half later when surveillance video of him at Lindsay Lohan's house came out. And there was images of him at both Audrina Patridge and Lindsay Lohan's house with Rachel looking into the camera. And I was like, holy shit. Like, this is way beyond what I thought that, you know what I mean? Like, I had no idea how bad this was. And... Mind you, I was no Mother Teresa. Like, I get, I was a trash. I I don't want to say I was a, I was a really sick person. Mm -hmm. And so you were kind of part of it, but staying out? Yeah. So basically, um, I became the face of the bling ring because I had a reality show and sex sells, right? Like this young, crazy party girl who has her own reality show became, you know, I became the face of the bling ring. But the truth is that Nick and Rachel had been robbing houses for a long time before and after I had any involvement in the bling ring. And so when the cops showed up to my house on the second day of filming, I thought, oh, you're here just to talk to me about the fact that I've been calling you and telling you that I know the people in these. Because I had a conscious. I knew that this was really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, This wasn't just like one night you're drunk and you. And you you just accidentally like you're doing some stupid, you get a bad, you know what I mean? I mean, that's a really bad idea, but you get, you know what I mean? People, what I've realized is that people steal regardless of their economic status, Mm -hmm. regardless, you know what I mean? You make, you make a bad, I wouldn't even say it's a bad choice. It was horrendous. And what's it called? The term for someone that like steals all the time? Kleptomaniac. Yeah. Yeah. Why do, yeah, do you, so that's basically was, what you think he was. There are reports that Rachel was obsessed with celebrity and basically, like, even went as far as taking people's underwear and, like, very weird stuff. Whoa. I don't know, like, the reality of any of that. I just know that for them it was much more than just, like, stuff. Mm-hmm. It was lifestyle. It mm-hmm. was the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it became so popular, too, because celebrities were seen as untouchable. And so in December, which was... That's what makes it so interesting that someone was able to pull that off. Well, in so this was just the beginning of social media where celebrities were still saying, oh, I'm at the MTV Movie Awards tonight. I'm, you know what I mean? Where people were still really giving away Where where they were. And... There, so in December, which was five months before I met Nick, they robbed Paris Hilton's house and they went into that house, I think, eight times. Did 
It wasn't no until like the knew, fifth or no that one... she kind of started to realize oh, that stuff. Okay. And they took cocaine and money and purses and jewelry and millions of dollars worth of stuff. stuff. And she didn't really catch it. Like she was probably like, oh, where's that? Or Yeah, I don't know. And it's wild to me. So, and were you, so you were involved in the later ones or just one? Uh, I was just, like I said, I was literally just out with Nick one night and, you know, my husband's like, don't you kind of wish now that you could say you were like the mastermind? And I'm like, it would be, you know what I mean? Like finally, you know, I, I, I became the face of it just because the story Maybe. line that, you know, yeah. two kids from Calabasas were robbing celebrities that only lasts for so long. But I was able to have like the train wreck of nine months of fighting a case with all the tabloids incorrectly reporting about me, even going as far to say that I was involved with other burglaries, which that's not the case. I was charged with one burglary. I was only, they only, Nick ever said that I was only at one house. When he got caught, he threw every single name, every single person that was ever involved in anything under the bus for less jail time, prison time. And I mean, I would have done the same thing. Like Mm -hmm. he, he and Rachel were like the masterminds of this and, um, you know, they got away with it for a long time and then they didn't anymore because they got, you know, addicted to the rush of the whole experience, but um, yeah, so I, I had a reality show where I was 19 years old, addicted to heroin, fighting a, cri- a criminal first degree burglary charge on national television. Is this still like, is it still up? I need to go watch your show. It's on <laughs> iTunes. Yeah. You can buy it on iTunes oh for like gosh. $12. Um, and every single episode I'm so high and it's just. It's a disaster. Yeah. Pretty much. And how long did that last? We filmed for nine months. So yeah. Up until the point where I, I eventually, I ended up taking a plea deal because I have a couple of things. My attorney was not the greatest attorney, despite the fact that I paid him an outrageous amount of money. (laughs) Um, and there was a document that was falsified and my attorney didn't double check it. And he advised me to take a plea deal off of that. Not just off of that, but also the fact that he was like, I don't think you're in any condition to be able to fight a case. Like yeah. if we go to trial, this is, and so I ended up taking a plea deal, So you, which I wish you- I didn't now because my other co-defendants, this cop was so dirty and doing such dirty stuff that some of my other co-defendants ended up getting off with just like barely probation because they didn't have much involvement. Like Nick and Rachel were kind of the main they, yeah, I, I mean, they drug, they, they took down a lot of other people that just were like these, and I don't want to say innocent kids, but these just really naive. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. The mm-hmm. whole thing was really just so, such a mess. So you ended up taking, pleading guilty? Um, I pled no contest, no contest, which is essentially a guilty, but I'm, mm-hmm. I, I didn't care. Um, and then you went to jail. I went to jail. So what the fuck was that like? It was horrible. Were you terrified to go to jail or were you like, whatever, I'm going to jail. I mean, I was using drugs heavily. My, my drug use definitely escalated in jail. No, before I went. So that really numbed out kind of a lot of the reality of the fact that I, you know, I was going to 
end up going to jail. And I, I think it was four days after my 19th birthday, I surrendered the criminal courts building in downtown Los Angeles to go to the Linwood Correctional Facility. And yeah, it was a, a rude awakening um, for sure. It was also the best thing that ever happened to me. I know, but not many people can say that. Like most people end up back in the system. So that's... Yeah. And I did end up back in the system. So (laughs) I did my summer and I could clearly see during that summer, like heroin is a problem. Mm -hmm. It's ruining my life. Mm -hmm. I ended up having a horrendous detox. Heroin withdrawal is one of the most painful things anyone could ever go through. Yeah. And you were dealing with that in jail. It's violent. Yeah. And I was in protective custody too. So I was in a cell by myself, 23 out of 24 hours a day. I got out for one hour with no (gasps) physical contact. Oh my gosh. Um, That in and of itself is is, like a lot of people try and commit suicide when that's their situation. I don't know how I survived it. It was, I, I, it was insane, but what I realized was like heroin is a problem. And, um, when I got out, I had every intention of, you know, I'm just going to smoke pot and drink. That's it. I didn't realize that the drugs weren't the problem. My trauma was the problem. Mm I needed to deal with the trauma in order to recover, Mm -hmm. but I didn't get that. And I was 19 and had never, no one in my family has been to rehab. No one in my family, you know what I mean? Like no one's one's tried to get sober. No one's, you know, that, that wasn't our reality. So what ended up happening was I got out and within two weeks I was back to shooting up heroin. And I, was dealing with so much shame too, which is so crippling. People just underestimate the way that shame actually completely like inhibits you from, you know, doing anything with your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was being so just like publicly ridiculed and it was emotionally like exhausting. So What did you do for work? Like, how did you afford the heroin? We were still waiting for, to hear if our show was going to get picked up for a second season. Our show was super successful. We had millions upon millions of viewers, downloads, Mm -hmm. talking about podcast terms, uh, viewers every week. And so we were waiting to hear what was going to happen. I still had like a little bit of money left over from Mm -hmm. um, my show, but not much. I was panhandling for drugs at this point, like. I didn't care what I had to do to get drugs. I needed to get drugs. And so I ended up um, at my mom's house on last day of November of 2010. And it was because I couldn't afford the gas or electricity in my house. In my apartment, I lived in like a little studio in Burbank. And it was a really cold winter. For LA, like it was a weirdly, you know, mm-hmm. and when you can barely afford your dope, often you'll go in and out of withdrawal. And I couldn't afford it. So I went to my mom's house to have like at least a warm place to go to until I could get to my drug dealer the next day. And I hadn't been showing up for probation because my entire life revolved around getting high. Mm-hmm. And the cops showed up. And I, it was interesting because literally that night I was like, I'm so done. Like, I just can't, 
I can't do this anymore. Like something's got to give. Like I, I have no coping skills. I don't know. And this is not, this is not exactly what I thought. This was the truth of what the situation mm-hmm. was, but like I, I didn't, I have no coping skills. I have years and years of trauma of abuse that I have never dealt with or even looked at. And these drugs are going to kill me. That's what I knew. Like the drugs you are going to, I'm going to yeah. die. Um, and so the cops showed up and cops showed up because I didn't show up to probation. And for some reason they went to my mom's house instead of my apartment in Burbank that morning. They just knew where I was going to be somehow. Mm-hmm. don't know how. And that, ended up being the first day of really the rest of my life. I admitted, um, judge Peter Espinoza saved my life. I was supposed to go to six years in prison because I violated my probation and he gave me a chance at rehab. And oh, so you went to rehab mm-hmm. instead. So I went to rehab instead and it changed my life. So I went into a year long program where I ended up going to school to become a drug and alcohol counselor Wow. When I got out, um, did you, um, deal with a lot of your emotional issues in rehab or do you think that the, it's not, it wasn't really set up that way? I just don't think I was ready. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I was voted least likely to succeed in my <laughs> rehab. Um, nobody thought that I would make it. And I'm one of the only people that has. Mm-hmm. So out of the 40 of us that were there, there's me and maybe three other people who are still sober to this day. And so, um, and I mean, continued sobriety, maybe they've gone back into treatment or mm-hmm. whatever it might be, but I mean like from that time period and I, I wasn't, I wasn't really ready to deal with the emotional stuff, but here's what I found. I found a community. Mm-hmm. I had never had that before in my life where I could openly talk about my sexual abuse, my trauma, whatever, with other people who had been through the same thing and for them not to judge me, but to say me too, man. Mm -hmm. That really sucks. And so that really got me by for that first year. Um, I remember telling my therapist about my abuse, my sexual abuse, and she wanted to report it right away and I wasn't ready. And I shut down and I never talked about it again until I was ready. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was like, it was the community. It was the other people in there that really, and I, and I, and I do believe that trauma, enough trauma will absolutely equate to addiction mm-hmm. and that the solution to that trauma, which heals the addiction is connection, mm-hmm. the connections that we have with ourselves and with others. And those connections are absolutely imperative, imperative for a successful life. Mm-hmm. And I still have those connections today. I have my core group of eight friends that we all got sober around the same time or met around that time Mm -hmm. and are still friends to this day. When I talk to you, I'm just shocked that you went through this large period of your life being addicted to something like heroin because most of the time I feel like people can't even speak properly. I mean, they can't like really even... I think it ha- does a lot of damage to your mm-hmm. brain, you know, I a don't couple know. of things about that. So addicts are inherently like really beautiful, sensitive people. Most of us are artistic. Um, we're empathic. We feel on a greater level. And a lot of people don't know how to deal with that. 
um, our brains are amazing things and our whole body actually like turns over every single one of its cells every seven years. And so I think I was really fortunate that I got sober as young as I did. I now have been sober nearly double the amount of time that I got loaded. So I'm coming up on nine years in December. So um, I technically count my sober date in March because I did whippets, which was so stupid. What is that? It's like off of a whipped cream can and it just like fries your brain cells for like five seconds and then it's over. It was so stupid. But I, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Um, but I got off heroin in December. So, you know, I think that's a huge accomplishment, Mm -hmm. but, um, so nine years and I think that, yeah, I, I think that we really are such incredible people. Um, my husband and I own a drug treatment center, Aloe House and how many, you have a lot of them, right? Yeah. So, um, we have about 70 beds right now, which is amazing. And we love the work that we do and we stand behind our message, which is connection, not control. Mm -hmm. So many of these facilities are punitive and have like a punitive approach of of the way that they talk and speak and, and, and act towards addicts. Um, And we really believe in, in forming amazing connections with people. So that way the connection that you have is far more valuable than the drug that you want to go and escape with. I would say that the vast majority of our staff is in active recovery. And I mean, everyone from our MDs who are our intern internists to our CITES to our therapists. So, you know, and many of them were addicted to opiates. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's an amazing thing. We, we really do recover. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it just takes time. How did you meet your husband? We met in AA, Mm -hmm. which um, I wouldn't recommend for everybody, but it worked for us. Mm -hmm. Um, Six months later, we were married, and we've been married for almost eight years. So right after you became sober, you Mm -hmm. met your husband, and then when did you have your baby? You you have two kids, right? Yeah, I have two kids, six and three. So my firstborn, um, we got pregnant about three, three months after we were married, so we got married in... Well, a little bit after that. We got married in April. Um, and in September, I found out that I was pregnant. Oh my so it was goodness. really fast. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you have, or obvi- I'm assuming you haven't had any of this conversation with your children. Or no, do I they have. Know? Yeah. What is that conversation like? So my kids um, have grown up with sober parents mm-hmm. and they know that we don't use alcohol in our household, we have family members that do. And actually my daughter's picked up on it now. She says, why does that stuff make grandpa so silly? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> um, so she kind of is starting to get it, but I mean, they grew up in the treatment center, so they know, mm-hmm. you know, um, they, they, I, it's like kid friendly. You know what I mean? Like I keep it light, but she knows what addiction is. And um, yeah. Does she know, I, or does he know that, are you, they're two girls, two girls. Do either of them know that you went to jail? So it was really funny. We, we were at the Malibu chili cook-off, which is one of our family traditions. And in front of it, they had one of those SWAT cars for the kids to get in. <laughs> and, um, and 
I said, you know, you don't ever want to end up in the back of one of these. (laughs) (laughs) And she looked up at Evan, my husband, who did go to jail for one night drunk tank. You know, he's one of those where he had a DUI and got sober. I have no idea what that's like. Like I needed to burn my life down to the ground before I was going to get sober. He had a DUI and he was like, that's it. Um, But he said, she said, daddy, have you ever been to jail? And he kind of just like chuckled or whatever. And I was like, don't ask mommy. Don't ask <laughs> Don't she ask did. mommy. Don't ask mommy. But, but when she does, I'll, I'll, I'm honest. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm a parent that really believes, I believe in respectful parenting mm-hmm. and I believe in, um, obviously it needs to be done in a way that is, uh, kid friendly, but I am also a sex positive parent too. Mm-hmm. And I believe in, you know, having all these honest dialogues and not sheltering our children. I believe that the way that society, obviously we need to protect children. We need to protect children from poverty and homelessness and not having clean water in Michigan mm-hmm. and all of these things, but children deserve to know the proper words for their body parts. They, they deserve to be able to have consent over their bodies. They deserve to know, you know, the truth about their family and their family's history. Mm -hmm. And the history is that we have years and years of generational trauma in our family, Mm -hmm. you know? And so while my kids will never see me and my mom fight, they'll never see me and my sister fight. They'll never see me and my, you know, they might see me and my husband bicker a little bit, but they see the makeup, right. Of, of that. They don't experience the same trauma. And mm-hmm. my husband and I have, we decided that on our first date that if we were going to have kids, my husband's 15 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And so when he got, when he asked me to marry him, I knew he was serious because he was actually kind of opposed to getting married before he met me and, and having children. And so we both have decided that we're breaking and ending the cycle of of generational trauma because, and people ask me often, like, are you afraid of your kids becoming addicts? And my answer is no, because like I said, trauma equals addiction. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if, and there's studies that prove this, if anybody's interested, you can go to aces and look at your adverse childhood experience study and, and do your own test and see the <gasps> ways so that it can cool. impact your life beyond addiction. What is because it? Aces too high. Aces too high. Okay. And so Kaiser Permanente and the CDC got together and they studied thousands of people and they asked them these 10 simple questions. And then they measured health outcomes against those 10 questions. Whoa. I'm going to go take that right And so it's this. not just like addiction or mental health or suicidality or any of these things that we know are going to go up by thousands of percents for every single mark that you mm-hmm. have. Um, but it's also things like cancer and heart disease and lung, you know, issues and pulmonary issues and all of these other things that people might not know their risk goes up with how much adverse childhood experiences that they've endured in their, and before they were 18 years old, I scored a nine out of 10. So I'm lucky to be alive today. Um, and we're all lucky that you are too, because now you're. No, really. I mean, not only did you, did you become sober, but you really were curious and you've learned so much and now you're a doula and you've really ended the ancestral trauma, the generational trauma that you're talking about. And, and now you have children that are going to go on and share this message too. I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. I waking up 
making the choice to become a conscious individual and human being um, and to do this life without checking out mm-hmm. is, is hard. It's yeah. much easier to bury your head in the sand and continue to drink and get loaded than it is to get sober. I always am honest with people. Mm-hmm. But the reward, if you can do this, is I can't even put it into words. I can't. I've had moments where I've been totally suicidal in, in my sobriety. I've had a pulmonary embolism and almost died when my daughter was eight days old. Oh, yeah. I remember you saying that. I've endured many, many um, traumatic events. And I would not, I wouldn't trade at all to go back to the life that I was, I was living before. And so while this may not be the easiest path, um, you know, and I hate to sound cliche, I practice Buddhism and, but it is the path of enlightenment and that enlightenment is so enriching. And I'm able to sit with people and have conversations, not just people like you, but people who are still in the middle of their addiction and say, Mm -hmm. it's okay. I've been there too. You know, and you don't have to get sober right now, but I hope one day you do, mm-hmm. you know, that you have that opportunity and that you take it and you run with it and you build a big and beautiful life too, because you deserve it. And so when I created Recovering from Reality, it's not just about um, addiction. Yeah. It's about recovering from life. Mm-hmm. I mean, the world that we live in and the state that we're living in right now is not sustainable. Mm-hmm. And so... How do we come together to share our stories of survival and to hear from experts that, you know, are, are aligned with, you know, this, this collective movement of change, mm-hmm. you know, of saying enough, I can't, this is not working for us anymore. We have to do better. I know you're doing an amazing job. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining Thanks me for and sharing me your story. And will you tell us a little bit about, just how people can find you and you're cause you're up to so many things. You're also mm-hmm. hosting events now. So I just want to make sure people know that they can go find you at events. They can get your book that's coming out. They can yeah. get your podcast. So, so on Instagram, you can follow me personally at it's Alexis Haynes. And uh, you can also follow the podcast page, which is recovering from reality. And if you go on our website, um, in just a couple of weeks here, we'll have a pre-order um, option for the book, mm-hmm. as well as a wellness event that I'm hosting in December in LA, which I'm really, really excited about. Me too. So I cannot, I cannot wait. Um, and so, yeah, you can visit our website or follow me on Instagram or listen to the podcast however you want to get in touch. (laughs) Yeah. And you have so many amazing tips for motherhood too. So you're just full Mm. of knowledge and I love following you. Yeah. Well, I do believe that if we want to end the generational trauma, um, it starts with mothers and it Mm -hmm. starts with parenting. And I think that that's really important. Thank you. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment or review, and share with your friends. I'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you, so keep in touch, and I'll see you next time.